All right, I want to I want to touch on a subject that uh, I originally didn't intend to cover uh, at this time as its own separate topic, but it has become necessary because of all the comments, all the messages that have been sent to me regarding the, just the state of affairs of things that are going on. And I don't mean really even as much in the political world, although it is a part of it, um, as within just the Christian community. And it, what finally sparked me to go ahead and at least put a part one of this out is I got a couple of messages even this morning from very concerned people, people I don't really know, but that they've been commenting for a while now, but then I had a couple more just this morning, and uh, it weighed heavy on my heart uh, because these con- these conversations are getting more serious. They're being more concerned, and here's what the conversations are. People are contacting me, and they're commenting on how concerned they are about the state of the church that they attend. And they're frustrated. I mean, and they're frustrated because either the church just doesn't seem to have a very strong backbone when it comes to covering biblical topics, or worse, it seems to have no backbone at all when it comes to covering topics that affect the world at large. And uh, and one of the one of the comments made this morning is a repeat of of versions that I've heard from people before, but this one just seemed to really hit me because he was talking about how. Um, this individual had become an outcast, basically, in their church. They've been kind of kicked out unofficially. They've become a, a black sheep in the church family. And here's why. Because they actually are standing out for their own personal political rights. And they're seeing their church not do that. They're seeing their church give in to the mandates uh, being put on society at large. They're seeing their churches being no different than some of these restaurants, or uh, theaters and things that are just saying, yeah, you need to be masked up, you need to be, you need to be show proof of vaccination, all this, the church doing this. And that's what's disturbing people more than anything. It's like, okay, can I understand somebody running a business where there's food involved or whatever, and they, they have a general public health thing that they, they want to cover, but they also pay taxes, receive taxes, uh, tax benefits, whatever. They have regulations that are put on them for health purposes and things of that nature. Um, and they're just trying to maintain some of business. And those places can be run by Christians and atheists alike, right? But then you get into the church, though, and it's like, how does the church fall into that? Where does the ch- church fall into political mandates that get put into place? And and I say it that way because that's exactly what this is. All the stuff that you're being limited on, when you go out outside of your own home every day, all of those limitations, all those restrictions, masks, vaccination verifications, COVID tests, whatever it is that you're doing, all of that, all of that is not laws put into place. That is political theater. Okay, Whether there's a real disease or not, it isn't even the, the issue. Whether there's really a virus out there, I'm not debating that. But the way that it's being treated, this particular one is being treated versus everything else. We don't treat... There's literally no disease out there that we treat like this. None. There are some highly, highly contagious viruses and diseases out there, especially with the influx of immigration that's come in, where we're getting people who are coming from very different environments where their health, uh, their general hygiene is different than ours. And it's, it's no different than... You take a United States citizen and they go to some third world country somewhere and they can't drink the water. Well, the people there can drink it, but we can't. Why? Because they're acclimated to it. Same thing happens in reverse. You take somebody who is uh, acclimated to a particular type of environment somewhere else and they come here, they can get colds and sicknesses and, and die from things here because what we're used to, they're not used to. And it works both ways. But these people that are there, they don't catch these diseases. They don't catch these viruses, but they become carriers of them for people who are not acclimated to those symptoms, to those issues, those things. And so we become targets for new disease um, whenever anyone from another country comes in, period. I mean, it really is the case. I mean, it's if they're from somewhere else, on the planet, 
um, the conditions can be slightly different of what they're acclimated to versus what we are. And therefore, they can be a carrier of something that means nothing to them but is could be deadly to us. And so that kind of stuff all makes sense, okay? And you're in a general public format. But it is up to those individual businesses, those theaters, those restaurants, those whatever. I mean, even the hospitals for that matter, although... To me, that's ridiculous, but because that's the very place you're supposed to go in case you are sick. So when the place that you're supposed to go to to get well from being sick tells you you can't come in because you might be sick or you might make other people sick, we've reached a whole new realm of insanity. And that's really where we are. When a hospital kicks somebody out their front door and refuses to treat them because they say that... Um, you are a threat health-wise to the other people here in the building. You're in a hospital. There are people that are sick in a hospital. And when you're sick, you go to a hospital. But when the hospital tells you you can't stay because you're not necessarily sick, but you could make someone else sick, possibly there's a, there's a less than a 1% chance you could make someone else sick, we're not going to service you. We're not going to do surgery for you. We're not going to give you chemo treatments. We're not going to do wellness checks or whatever Whatever it is that they're telling these people. You can't be here because you're not vaccinated. Hospitals don't make sense in all of that. That's the one area that people who are sick or who could be sick should be able to go and receive treatment, period. That's end of discussion, end of argument. But restaurants, theaters, things of that nature, I understand They've got options. There are general businesses that don't have to accept people in that are sick, and they don't have to accept people that could be sick. That is their prerogative. The church, however, is almost like the hospitals. Historically, the church is the place where if you are sick, if you are ill, be it physically, emotionally, spiritually, Whatever it is, if you are in need, the church is the place you should be able to go to. Now, granted, if you've got bubonic plague, you don't go to a church to get healing. Right? I mean, and that makes sense. But, and if you're seriously mentally ill, you don't go to a church to get healed from it. You, there are institutions for that. There are hospitals for those type of things. But the church doesn't turn those people away. Now, I've always had a problem with churches that have a problem with homeless people that come in to seek some kind of refuge, even if it's just for that moment. I've always had trouble with churches that will turn away those people because to me that is the very, that's the number one most fundamental thing that a church building is supposed to provide is help for those that are in need, those that are destitute. And... Yet, that's, those aren't the extremes that we're talking about. We're not talking about people who are homeless that need to be taken in. We're talking about somebody who isn't ill, doesn't show any signs of being ill, who has a 99 point whatever percent chance of not only not being ill or getting ill or giving anyone else an illness, being turned away by the churches because they're not following some kind of politically sanctioned instructions, guidelines, suggestions. Again, they're not laws. And people are having problems with this. Now, I have had myself as well as family members who have, and friends, who have taught in you know, Sunday school, they've taught Bible studies, they've done men's groups, women's groups, they've done all kinds of things in churches over the years, and the politics in the church have overwhelmingly suffocated them out and pushed them out of the church. And what's interesting is that it's never, <laughs> at least in my experience, it has never been because what they want to preach or what they want to teach or what they want to talk about is too liberal. It's always be it's always on the direction of it. it's too conservative. <laughs> it's too conservative. It, it it it's adhered too strictly to scripture or it's too specific to, you know, a particular thing. But if you're liberal about the way that you do it, if it's about inviting all types of ideas and customs and concepts and theories into play, bring it on. In fact, we'll, we'll promote you up into an actual paid position within our church. We'll make you a staff member. That's what I've historically seen in churches, which is not a good, it's not a good trend. But that 
isn't even what we're talking about now. We're talking about churches now that refuse to talk about things behind the pulpit, period. There are certain portions of the Bible they won't cover. There are certain uh, political aspects of the world around their congregation that they will not address, and they don't want anyone in the church addressing them either. And the hypocrisy today is that they're using Scripture to claim this is why we do what we do and to tell you why you shouldn't do anything different than what they're doing. And you're getting more and more church people who are going, you know what? It's not that I'm rejecting my church. It's that my church is getting to the point where they're rejecting me. And that was one of the conversations I had this morning. And it's led me to go ahead and at least, like I said, produce part one of this. I'm, this is going to be an ongoing topic. But I want to touch on some general stuff. Um, and the title for this for this podcast is, Whom Does Your Church Serve? And it's not a pleasant one. It's, it's a conversation that I, has been long coming and will not leave. And, and I say that not to be a pessimist. I'm not being pessimistic in this. I'm being realistic from a scriptural perspective and from an eschatological perspective. I'm being honest. And it's not about your political affiliations, and it's not about what part of the world that you're from or in or going to or how you've been raised. It has nothing to do with any of that. And regardless of your political arena that you choose to, uh, to fight in, it should disturb you, period. Just if, you're, if you really truly claim to be a Bible-believing, Scripture-based Christian, what is happening in our churches today should disturb you. But, again, as an end times person, I do believe that this is where our church is going. Does it mean that we cannot delay things? No, I don't believe that. Does it mean that we don't have any say in the matter? No, I don't believe that either. Um, we have free will. But that doesn't mean God doesn't know what we're going to do with that free will. Does that mean God pushes us in that direction? I don't believe that. And there's a whole... <laughs> there are entire denominations, entire faiths that are built around that question, really. So I, I don't have time to delve into all of that, but I don't believe that God controls every moment of our lives. We do have free will. God created us that way. And I think in order for us to be in his image, we have to have a certain level of that. We just have to. We're not drones. We're not being controlled every moment by a superior being. But that doesn't mean that superior being doesn't know what we're going to do. See, those are two different things. And I, I used to explain this to my own children who, quite honestly, as adults, they, you know, they go their own directions. But I used to try to explain to them that I do believe that we have free will. But I think what happens is that God has the infinite ability, obviously, the omniscient ability to see where our choices are going to take us. And if there's a particular path he wants us to go on, he knows what we're going to choose, and he gives us options to continue down the path as he has intended for us to go. But again, those are options. And I think there are micro moments where we are constantly having to be kind of re-geared into options. He continues to put a series of doors in front of us of options for us to do in our next breath. And he wants us down a particular path. He wants to use us in a certain way, but it doesn't mean that we're going to necessarily do that. But he's going to continue to give us those options up until the very end. I do believe that. And only God can create a scenario where that opportunity is there. But that's also why I believe that there is no such situation, period, where there is complete and utter hopelessness when it comes to your walk with Christ. I do not believe that. I do not believe that there's a moment where God goes, okay, I've had enough. I throw my arms up. I'm no longer going to care about what this person does. You're on your own. I don't believe that. I believe God, like, like any dutiful, loving, embracing parent, looks at all of his children and says, I'm not giving up on you. Even if you give up on you, I'm not giving up on you. So I do not believe there's a scenario where 
God is the one that says, okay, enough. I'm not helping. I'm not working with this person anymore. It's when we give up. We're the ones that choose not to open any more of those doors. But that doesn't mean God doesn't provide the doors. Okay, so there's where I stand on all of that. Now, in regards to all of this, I think the church is not beyond fixing. But I'm not going to go down that slippery slope of this idea that if we fix the church, somehow we change the end times. The end will be the end. We do not know when that end will be. Do we have control over when it happens? No. But do we affect it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Does a pebble in a stream control the river? No. But it affects where the river goes and how it gets to its destination. We are all a part of that. And I do believe that we do have power within our lifetime to influence the circumstances around us. And that not only includes, but I think it is particularly, specifically important in the category of politics. I do believe that. And I'm going to talk today about a portion of that and of why I see it the way that I do. And I'm going to talk about U.S. constitutional things uh, going forward in this as well as biblical. So I'm going to be talking not just from Christianity, but I'm going to be talking from the United States Constitution perspective as well and our founding figures, things of that nature, okay? And that's going to continue to develop as we go into it. And I can't guarantee all of that's going to be covered in this part, but it will be covered in future parts. Now, <clears throat> one of the things that uh, people hide behind, uh, one of the areas they hide behind is that they try to make certain claims about certain things. And they, they, and the sad thing is, is that what I'm going to be talking about today is about the church. Now, it's how the church perceives it. It's the way the church has manipulated Scripture to be looked at in a particular way. And I'm going to try to get back to the roots of these particular verses that have been misrepresented. And again, it, it, ironically enough, a lot of the misrepresentation began to happen in the 1800s again with a shift in the way theology was looked at and the way the topics were covered. And so that'll be a topic of the 1800s shift you know, in another part, probably part, part two, the next one I'm, I'm putting together. But let's look at Matthew 22. Okay, we're going to initially look at, at just at Matthew 22. And you see how all of this uh, works here. You've got these verses. Now, this is in the King James. So for those of you that uh, can't understand Old English, you might have to kind of look it up yourself. But here's how it says. It says, tell us therefore. Now, okay, now the context of this is that the local leadership were trying to trap Jesus with a tax question. And they were trying to say, we know that you're an upright man, you're a good, you're a good figure, you know, you're, and all that. But, you know, can you tell us, therefore, what thinkest thou? Is it lawful to give tribute unto Caesar or not? So they're asking him a tax question. You know, is it, you know, I understand how you see the community, but it, is it right for you to give taxes to Caesar or not? It says, But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the, the tribute money. And they brought unto him a penny. And he said unto them, Whose is this image in superscription? They said unto him, Caesar's. Then saith he unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and unto God the things that are God's. Now, people have used this series of verses for a long time, and they you know they want to use it as as a way of well you know separate things out you know what there's there's nothing wrong you know you've got taxes so give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and unto God what is God's but they they ignore. Under God, what is God's? What Jesus was actually saying here, he was doing a whole lot more than answering a tax question. Okay? He was establishing a very new but a very clear definition that there are two distinct governing realms in our life. Whether it was first century Jews or it's 21st century Christians, he was indicating there are 
clearly two different distinct realms of governing. There's the one that is the civil government, that the Caesar side, and then there's the religious community, which is the God side. Now, this was new. This was new for them. And you have to remember, the Jewish people at that point, they were used to their theocracy, which was a God-governed environment. Now, I say they were used to it. They, they were founded off of a theocracy, but they complained and grumbled so much that God gave them a king. <laughs> and you can do all the Old Testament reading you want on, and, and, and the bulk of their issues came from these Old Testament kings um, they wanted a traditional government system like they had saw other nations having, and as a result of that, instead of following God, they followed a man. And then when the man was terribly flawed, their system was terribly flawed, and they suffered for it. But you have to remember, that was not how God originally designed the leadership for them. The governing figure was supposed to be God, not one of the men chosen among them. But God allowed them to have it. It's like, fine, you want it? Okay. Uh, this is what we're going to do. We're going to take away me governing you directly, and we're going to let one of your men do it and see how that fares out for you. But this was a change. Jesus was indicating there are two distinct different groups here. There are the civil government group, and there's the religious group. Your religious freedoms versus your civil, civil freedoms. And they're each governed by a different leader. You have civil rights that's governed by Caesar, and you have religious rights, which is governed by God. But what he was also saying here is that since the theocracy is gone and has been replaced with Caesar, the established religious institution of the day was also no longer the governing body. So no matter what the temple thought about things, the temple didn't run the daily life in which they lived. They had lost that privilege. They had lost that freedom of being governed by their faith, at least in their civil liberties. But Jesus was telling them, you render your civil freedoms through Caesar. You render your religious spiritual freedoms, your religious liberties, through God. And so that holds true even today. Even in all governments today, the civil government has the say and the responsibility to supervise you in your civil liberties, but it does not have a right to control you in your religious liberties. Your religious liberties still belong to God. You still seek that from God. And even today, you have the freedom, and you got a second dose of it through our own government. In the late 1700s, our founding fathers said, we need to write into these documents an understanding that you have religious liberties, and you have civil liberties, and that the government is not to control the religious ones, but then the religious ones are not to control the civil ones. Because we've been there. We've had the Church of England as our king. And it's not right. It was not the way it was destined. Our civil liberties should be run by another figure. It should be run in a different... And there's no one particular faith, no one particular denomination, no one particular church uh, that should be governing us in our civil liberties. They should be Caesars. But our religious liberties should stay with God. Even in the Founding Fathers, it's very clear in the documentation they wrote. I mean, in the first two sentences of the Declaration of Independence, it refers to God-given rights, and it refers to our Creator. It refers to God very directly in that documentation. So the Founding Fathers were not trying to remove God from the process. They were just indicating there are religious liberties that belong in your faith in God, and there are civil liberties in which we ourselves are supposed to govern each other. We, the people, refers to the civil liberties. In the beginning, okay, and for, for God so loved the world, those concepts are your religious liberties. 
You, you see where we're, we're going in the scripture is like the Constitution. The Constitution covers civil liberties. The Bible and Scripture covers your religious liberties. And the two do not control the other. They don't. Now, they have influences with each other, but they do not control each other. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But even today, people have the freedom regarding religious faith. They have the freedom to follow a faith, and they have the freedom to choose not to follow a faith. They have their freedom regarding the doctrines that they hold and the doctrines they don't want to hold, how they want to worship and how they don't want to worship. All of that is freedoms. And Caesar has no place in stepping into that arena and indicating any kind of sense of control over any of that. Period. Because all of that belongs to God. And that's really what Jesus was saying here. I don't have a problem giving Caesar's coin to Caesar. But when it comes to things that are God, I'm not giving Caesar what belongs to God. I'm giving to God what belongs to God. My soul, my devotion, my faith is all going to go to God. It's, that's where it's going to be. My prayers are going to go to God. But I don't have a problem giving Caesar back what Caesar gave me in coins and in property and in whatever. That That's... Okay, give it back to him. But Caesar cannot come in and, and take control over what belongs to God. And our founding fathers still agreed with it, and they built the documentation that has secured our nation all this time off of those principles, regardless of what you're told in school today or what you hear on TV, regardless of what network it is. And unfortunately, and again, this is where why we're even having this particular podcast, even if your church is telling you something different, and unfortunately, I think that is exactly where we are. In fact, I know it is. The church is preaching what the media is preaching. The church is preaching that you personally, as a member of their, of their faith, should not be in politics. You shouldn't meddle in it. It has nothing to do with you. You should stay out of politics. You should submit to the leadership that is out there. The officials are, you know, are there for a reason. But we, as the administration of this church, have a right to comply to, and really are required to comply to, the political world that we've told you you shouldn't be battling in. They're telling you that the church shouldn't control the state, but the state has a right to control the church. Well, it's, you, know, you hear stories, you've heard stories in the last year and a half, two years, particularly of ministers that have caved completely into the concepts of what the city ordinances is that you can't do this, you can't do that. No, no, no. This is a church body. Our people will meet. They have a freedom to assemble. I think I read that in the Constitution somewhere. They have a right to assemble. And they have a freedom of religion. But the church members are standing back watching their ministers, their administrations, their um, councils, not unlike the school boards, go out there and completely give in to the system and saying, no, 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 you're right. Caesar has a right over this. But the individual church members can't go in and say anything about it. We shouldn't be talking about it behind the pulpit, and you certainly shouldn't be promoting it uh, as a member of this church. You'll become an outcast, and that's exactly where we are, and that's where the individuals that I spoke with this morning, that's exactly what they are. They are now outcasts in their own churches because they are standing up for give to God what is God's and Caesar to what is Caesar's when the church is saying that Caesar has a right to what is God's, but God doesn't have a right to try to influence whatsoever anything regarding what Caesar has. Unless it's the church, church administration, then we, we have to submit to Caesar. But the church body isn't allowed to fight that. There's nothing scriptural about that, and there's nothing constitutional about that. The civil government knows they don't have a right to do it. The religious liberties groups know that they don't have a right to do that. And yet both sides are looking at it going, well, we're just going to ignore all that. Today's church is claiming that the church members should abstain from any political arena while those same church administrators are adhering 
to the political arenas. Now, one of the things, and this again, I can understand why so many people are having trouble, why they don't want to attend their churches anymore, why they can't find a new church to attend, why they are so disgruntled and they have no place for religious sanctum. They, they can't find refuge in their church because their church has abandoned them. And for everybody that has made that comment, I have, I have many more actually in the past, but it's dwindling now, thankfully. I had a whole group of people that were trying to quote particular pieces of Scripture to me personally. Um, and I've said this in the past. It's amazing. I mean, I can talk about all kinds of conspiracy theories all day long and get tens of thousands, if not two to three million responses off of things. And that, at one point, that's literally where my account was. Before it was First Century Press and it was Patriots Fight Media, uh, some of my posts on Instagram would get two to three million impressions off of it, meaning it was a ripple effect. I didn't have that many followers on my account, but I, I would affect two to three million would see my posts. That's that's a rather large influence. But it was because I was covering conspiracy theory stuff. When I started covering that and started looking at the roots of where all this is coming from and started looking at it from a scriptural perspective, when I started talking church, uh, it disappeared. I might get a few hundred people that will like something, and as far as the impressions are concerned, maybe a few more hundred or a couple of more thousand will actually see it. Nowhere near the two to three million mark, because what I'm talking about now isn't theory anymore. It's scriptural. And when I talk about it in the connection of politics, they really hate it. Now, that's what's wild about it. They love to hear me talk about politics, and they love to hear about how we're going to win this battle in the end. And they love to hear the themes that sounded very spiritual. The Great Awakening. They love that term. But when I was talking about an actual Great Awakening, a scriptural, spiritual Great Awakening, then suddenly they didn't want me to talk about it anymore. Then suddenly they were sending me messages, nasty messages, and they were quoting scripture to me, telling me that I had no right, that I was doing a disservice to be talking about Christianity and politics at the same time. And there were two particular references that they like to use, references that are being used in churches, but references that have been used to me, and I'm sure you've received some of this as well. If not, you probably will if you're fighting against any of this. Romans 13, first six verses or so of Romans 13, and then 1 Peter chapter 2, and again, only a few verses there. They want to throw those two particularly at me. And as far as New Testament, now people are, want to throw all kinds of Old Testament at me. And all, <laughs> to be, and this is where I'm, I'm going to get some negative comments from this. To be a really successful Christian, believe it or not, you do not have to be fluent in Old Testament. I <laughs> know, I know. I'm talking, I'm talking crazy talk now, but you don't have to be a fully saturated, um, memorized participant of Old Testament Scripture in order to be a good Christian. You know why? Because when Christ came, he fulfilled what was spoken of, attempted in the Old Testament. He personified those things they were trying to get right in the Old Testament. Now, in order to understand the history of the events that took place and why certain things are talked about in the New Testament, yes, you need to have a working knowledge of the Old Testament. But in order for you to function as a fully Christ-believing, faithful Christian, you do not have to be chin-deep in the Old Testament. You don't. Now, am I saying the, the Ten Commandments are invalid? No, I'm not saying anything of that. I'm not being radical to that. Those, however... You have to understand, those are, uh, those are ten things that society in general have agreed on throughout history. Those tenets are tenets that have been accepted by the vast majority of civilized world since history began. 
They're not invalidated if you don't memorize exactly the way that they're spoken of in the Old Testament, but you understand the concepts. I mean, you, you get that it's wrong for you to commit murder. You get that it's wrong for you to covet after someone else's wife or someone else's property, which both, by the way, imply that you do have ownership in this world, that things do belong to you. And that, that I'm going to save that for another for another podcast. But the Ten Commandments prove that that they they battle against this idea of communal ownership and socialism and all that. I mean, the Ten Commandments fight that, but that's world structure. But you don't need to memorize Old Testament for you to have a New Testament faith understanding that you don't commit murder, you don't commit adultery, you don't steal, you don't covet other people's things, including their people, you don't disrespect uh, family. You don't. There are certain things that you do understand kind of by nature and by common sense you understand these things. Um, but Jesus replaced, he, like I said, he perfected the things they were attempting to accomplish in the Old Testament and failed time and time and time and time and time again. The Old Testament is more of a history of people who kept losing their faith, kept losing their direction, and kept being redirected. There's a lot of that in that history. A lot of indications of very flawed people who sought out the Lord, lost their way, regained their connection with the Lord, and the Lord blessed them, or the Lord punished them. It's, it's a very important history because it shows that flaws don't keep you from Christ. Flaws don't keep you from being able to have a relationship with God. But you can have a full Christian life without having to delve into the Old Testament. And so when people want to quote me Old Testament passages for Christianity, some of it I'm looking at and going, <laughs> you're trying to apply something to 21st century world that was intended for Israelites, specifically for them. And, and it's not everything in the Old Testament, but there are elements in there that were specific things that were done to them because of things they did. It was not examples of the Lord did this to all civilization. It was that these people did this thing wrong, and as a result of that, they got punished. It's a history of isolated incidences of things um, and mandates that were put on restrictions, ordinances, whatever you want to look at it, that were put on people at certain time periods because of things they did at that time period. doesn't mean that it automatically applies as an umbrella effect to every society ever existing since then, and, uh, and you don't fall underneath that. And But I say all that to say these two sets of verses, particularly that people have been throwing at me over the last couple of years, I'm going to read them, and then we're going to discuss them, okay? And it's... Uh, it is ridiculous uh, to see the direction that some of this stuff goes in, but this is where we are. Okay, so that's the first of these. Let's look at Romans 13. Again, it's just the first six verses, and it's really not even all of those verses. But people have a tendency to want to throw the first two verses at me, or at you, for that matter. And they want to ignore verses 3 through 6, okay? But let's look at this. It says, Let every soul be subject unto the highest, uh, higher powers. For there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the power, resisteth the ordinance of God. And they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. Now this is where most people want to end it. They want to throw verses 1 and 2 at me and say, See, everybody that's appointed to higher power is appointed there by God. There are no, there's no power but of God. So all of these people, even if you don't like them, they're all put in their place because God wants them there. Now, what they want to do is they want to throw into that meaning, so if we've got bad leaders now, it's because it's punishment for us, it's judgment on us, that we deserve these people in these positions. Now, let me pause there for a second and cover that. If that's the case, then why were judges appointed over Israel in the Old Testament? If you'd love to throw Old Testament in there, the judges were appointed because 
The people weren't doing what they're supposed to do. So those leaders were put into place by God. And in many cases, they weren't the kings. They weren't the actual power holders. They were people who came in to judge the people. But they were not the ones in charge of the people. They were there to rebuke them, to correct them and re-guide them back into the Lord's path again. That's a very specific type of leader. But again, what the scripture says here is that let every soul be subject unto the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. Okay? Now that tells me that means that if they really have power, the power is coming from God. And it talks about resisting the power and resisting the ordinance of God. Okay, that's all great. And I agree with that. But then you have to read verses 3 on to understand what is the context in which these leaders that are appointed by God behave. Okay, if they're appointed by God, how do they behave? And verse 3 says this. It says, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. Oh, wow. So a God-appointed leader is somebody who fights evil not good. And it goes on. It says, Wilt thou then not be afraid of the power? Do that which is good, and thou shalt have praise of the same. I mean, Paul's making it very clear here to the Romans. Right? It's pretty simple. It's like, you don't have nothing to fear if you're doing the, the right things. If you're evil, then you should be concerned. But if you're not evil, you shouldn't be concerned. Because the rulers that God appoints are not there to terrorize good works. They're there to terrorize evil. Hmm. So if God appoints all the leadership for those people who today want to say that even those corrupt people that are in position, they're there because God put them there. So you're going to tell me that God put them there because God puts leaders in position to inflict pain upon the good and praise upon the evil. Because that's what they do. But that's not what this scripture says here. It says that rulers are not a terror to good works, but to the evil. A true leader appointed by God, ordained by God, is a terror to evil, not to good works. And then it goes on. It says, for he is the minister of God to thee for good. Okay, so the God-appointed leader is the minister of God for us. For what purpose? For good. But if thou do that which is evil, be afraid. For he beareth not the sword in vain. For he is a minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. Hmm. So a God-appointed leader is somebody who raises their sword as a revenger to execute wrath upon those that do evil. Hmm. So I guess if somebody who's in an appointed leadership position doesn't do that, maybe they're not actually appointed by God. Maybe that's that. Maybe they're not really given the power by God. Hmm. And then it goes on. Wherefore ye must needs be subject, not only for wrath, but also for conscience sake. For for this cause pay ye tribute also. For they are God's ministers attending continually upon this very thing. Okay, again, what we're looking at here, okay, is that if they are God appointed, they are there to bring wrath, and it indicates like a sword, okay, to bring wrath upon the evil and praise upon the good. So how do you know that they're a God appointed leader? Well, they praise good and they abhor evil. So these people that have been arguing that, well, you know, even when we get these, these corrupt figures in place, God's put them there. Not according to Romans 13. According to Romans 13, somebody who's been appointed by God and been, been given power through God for that position, they're there to fight evil and to praise good. So if the person who's in that position is doing evil and is not doing good, who's praising evil and abhorring good works, they must not have the power invested through God. Now, 
Now, if we were to just stop there, people would still find reasons and loopholes through all of that, and they'd still have a problem, and I get all of that. I, I do. I understand all of that. But you have to see where I'm coming from. If you can make the argument that, that this verse, these verses tell you that everybody is appointed by God and therefore we should listen to them and respect them and honor their position, you're missing out on the qualifications they have to have in order to be those position, in that position appointed by God. If the people that are in position do not qualify under these guidelines, then under verses 3 through 6, then verses 1 and 2 don't apply to them. I mean, that's just common sense. If the whole description doesn't match, <laughs> and, and this is we do this in the Constitution all the time, and we, we have a tendency to ignore the commas and treat them as if they're periods, and where there are commas, a lot of times in, in the Constitution, there's a particular something that follows in line right after that. And uh, it, let me see, what, see if I've got it right here in front of me. Uh, I'm going to use this as an actual example. If you look at, at Article 1, uh, Section 8 of the Constitution, it says, the, you know, it says the powers, these are the powers that are granted to Congress, and it says that the Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, and then it has a comma. A lot of times we want to stop right there and say they have they have the power to to collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises. But no, there's more to the sentence. It says to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. So they have power to collect taxes for a particular reason. There's a particular use for those taxes, and that use is to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. See, we have a tendency to knock out the second half of it. We ignore where the comma hits in there, and people do the same thing with the Scripture. They look at the first two verses and say, ah, say we got you, and they completely ignore the other portion of it that qualifies the first verses. And in this case, what qualifies these verses is that these figures need to be a minister that is appealing and protecting us for good, that is praising good and abhorring evil. If they're not doing that, then they're not appointed by God, and they don't have the power given by God. Now, we can continue on with that and go into uh, the, the second set of verses that gets sent to me quite often. And, uh, and that is 1 Peter 2, and it's usually verses 13 and 14. And it just simply says, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. Again, people will send me verse 13, and they will ignore the second half or all of 14. They just say, you're supposed to submit yourself to every ordinance of man for, for the Lord's sake, whether it be the king or not. But there's a reason that there's a, there's a secondary there. Okay. As unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. Again, you have this passage in there that has a qualifier. You submit yourself to every ordinance for the Lord's sake, regardless of who it is in leadership that's doing it, if they are punishing evildoers and praising good doers. See, there is a stipulation in there. There is another portion of this that needs to be covered in all of this. And, and again, people... They don't, they don't want to cover all of it. They don't, want, they don't want you to see everything that the Scripture says. They want to isolate these verses and make you believe um, a couple of things. They want you to believe that you should submit at all costs to all leadership that are there because they've all been appointed by God. Every single one of them. Every single figure who's in a controlling position has been appointed by God, which I guess means our voting process has absolutely no purpose whatsoever. None. So if I were you, if you believe all things, then you need to immediately stop voting, period. 
because it's, it's, it's doing no good. Participating in a voting system it may, means nothing if they're all automatically appointed by God. You have no say in anything. But I guess that also means that, really, if you look at it that way, I guess, really, you shouldn't have to apply for any position either because God will automatically give you the job that you need. Yeah. You don't have to ask that person out because God will automatically put you together with them, make, you know, allow you to be married to them and have beautiful, incredible children. You never have to pay any debt for anything that you do in society because God already has a plan for it and it will all be taken care of. Now, am I being foolish? Am I being sarcastic? Am I being ugly or nasty? Maybe I am. But I'm, am I being actually un- inaccurate? No, not really. People who tell you that you should vote, but you shouldn't get involved in politics are idiots. Plain and simple. Now, Here's my question for those people who want to quote either one of those passages, inappropriately quoted it at least, and try to tell me that I should have no business talking about politics and that neither, neither should anybody in your church, that we should just completely just shut up and just let everything happen as it happens. Here's my question. How can a government, governmental officials that are appointed under the stipulations of what those two passages say, who are supposed to be promoting good and abhorring evil, how can those government officials effectively serve God in doing these roles if no one is allowed to tell them what to believe, to instruct them and advise them in how God expects them to behave in those positions or to rebuke them when they do not do it? How can they punish those who do evil if they have no spokesperson giving them solid counsel on what is good and what is evil. We, as the Christian community, are here to be salt and light, right? And we are here to advise those in power and to rebuke those who misuse power. And for those of you that are now going to say, well, but no, that's not our role. We're not supposed to do any of that. That's not biblical. Yes, Yes, it is. Old and New Testament alike record countless examples of figures sent by God to either rebuke or to advise government officials. Daniel, John the Baptist, Paul, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Amos, Obadiah, Nahum, Jonah, Zephaniah, you just keep going. The Bible is full of figures, Old and New Testament, who were sent by God to either advise the current leadership or to rebuke them. And you try to claim that there, and if your church tries to claim that there is no legitimate scriptural reason why you should be politically active, they are false prophets. They're not just hypocrites. They are antichrists. And yes, I go that far with it, even to the point of your church figures. If your church leadership is telling you you should not be politically active, and if your church leadership refuses to talk about the current events in the world from the pulpit, you have a hypocrite at the nicest level in your church. You have a heretic and or an actual antichrist at the worst stage of it. Because biblically, the Bible is full of figures that were sent by God to advise and or rebuke the government officials. So if the government officials have all been appointed by God, why in the world would God assign people to go in and advise them and or to rebuke them when they don't do it? Now answer that one to me. If they're all appointed by God and they're all given God's power and we're supposed to listen to every single one of them, then why in the world did we have any of these other figures appear anytime in biblical history to either advise them or to rebuke them? You've contradicted your very self with scriptural history. And let that settle in. You have, you've gone completely, you've completely misunderstood the very history of the faith you claim to have. 
The Bible is filled to the brim with figures chosen by God to advise or to rebuke the leadership. And he would not need to do that, ladies and gentlemen, if the leadership were all appointed by him at that time. Even if, for those of you that still want to hold on this idea that we're getting what we deserve, if God wanted somebody in place that would punish us, why in the world would he send somebody out there to then admonish that person? Why? So are you saying now that all the government officials are now God-appointed, but the people who rebuke against them, none of them are from God? Because that's kind of the argument you have to make. I kind of tend to believe that there were particular figures that were put into place that were put into place to do, to praise those that were doing good in the Lord's eyes and to admonish and to tear down by sort of necessary those that were doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. And when those people weren't being steered in the right direction to understand what is good and evil, there were advisors that rose up and those advisors were, were religious figures throughout the days. Individual figures, figures within the, the time period in the temple, and then later on within the church. We have people today that are supposed to be fighting the battles to make sure that the officials that are put into place know and understand what is good and what is evil and that they appropriately praise and abhor the right category. I've got more. (laughs) I've got a lot more. But I'm going to end there because I'm I'm rounding it off at about an hour with this. I'm going to pick up from there in the next part of this, uh, and as we carry over into the Great Commission and we start looking at uh, who really has dominion over this world versus what we have been believing for a very long time. And I, I'll give you a little hint on that one. Satan doesn't actually run this place like we, uh, we want to believe or we tend to believe that he does. He never was given that position um, other than by himself. But I'll pick that up in the second part. But for now, I just wanted to cover initially this and give some encouragement for those of you that are facing isolation within your church. You are not in the wrong if you are trying to abstand on the side of Scripture and you're trying to be politically active as well and fight that battle. You are not wrong in doing so. But if your church is telling you that you are, if your church has kicked you out, either physically or societally, um, for those types of things, Your church is what's in flaw. The leadership in your church is what's wrong. And it's okay. You're not going to go to hell for saying that your church leadership isn't being biblical or that your church leadership isn't being spiritual. Um, They are not God. They're supposed to be appointed by God, but that doesn't mean they're doing God's will. Okay? And uh, you are supposed to point that out. I mean, it's not any different than pointing out the political figures that aren't doing what they're supposed to do, who don't recognize good and evil. If your ministers don't recognize good and evil, it's the same thing. In fact, it's worse. The church is supposed to be the moral ground. If we have a failing church, we have failing morality. If we have failing morality, then it doesn't matter what you want to put into place outside of the church, it's going to fail. It's all going to fall. If the church falls, morality falls. And that's really what they want. They want the church to fall. Satan would love to see the church fall because that would mean his battle would be won. Because everything else crumbles from that. If you don't have morality, if you don't have a clear understanding of what is good and evil, of who is good and who is evil, and who you can trust and who you don't trust, um, if you don't have a clear understanding of that, then everything else out there in the world is just going to continue to crumble. And I think that's what you're seeing. I think the reason why the political world is failing, why the educational system is failing, why the hospital system is failing, why all of those different areas in your life are failing is because the church itself is failing. The church gave in, has been giving in for a long time now, actually, but it gave in, and as a result, what you're seeing is the the disintegration of the other tenets in life around you. It starts with the church because that's where morality lives. 
And if morality gets tainted, then everything else becomes tainted. But again, we'll cover more of that in the next part. I love y'all. I'm praying for y'all. Please do not lose hope. Um, We're going to make it. (laughs) But it's a day at a time. Thank you.